Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of anime trending. If you're looking for nice tea and deep dive analysis about otaku things, you've come to the right place. We love our conversation and discussion, and we're back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I'm joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about cultural dissonance in anime. So, I think it comes without saying that anime is, you know, uh, very well connected with Japan because it quite literally originated in Japan. We are talking about Japanese animation in this case, whenever we say something is anime. And I don't think it should come as a surprise that sometimes the anime we consume, there is a bit of a cultural dissonance, a cultural gap in understanding. Um, And that's literally because no matter how much the anime is emulating or perhaps inspired by other countries' cultures, you know, for example, Vinland Saga is quite literally inspired by the tale of Torfing uh, from Finland, Uh, but there's probably going to be elements or themes of inherently Japanese culture that are entrenched into these stories. And there might be a dissonance because cultures are different for that matter. And I think all three of us here growing up as Asian American definitely have felt that cultural dissonance between us being Asians and us being Americans at the same time. And so, um, and I, and I think at the same, and despite all that, I think there's still going to be moments where there's a cultural dissonance in uh, perhaps the theme or the story or a particular story element that the author or the anime went with that we don't really quite agree with or we have a hard time understanding it because we are not Japanese for that matter. And uh, like one really fun small example, I don't think this is going to poach anyone. This is just a general sort of trope is that there's a lot of focus on the back of um, a woman's neck in anime. And that's always portrayed as something romantic and living with a Japanese roommate who Uh, you know, gives me these knowledgeable checks about culture. She explained that the reason why it's seen as romantic is because of how the way that the kimono wraps up the entire body, uh, the back of the neck is the only sort of intimate place that you can really see uh, with the kimono on if the girl parts her hair or if she like, you know, moves her hair to the side. And even though that, you know, clothes have changed and fashion, fashion has changed throughout the years, uh, the back of the neck is still considered a very romantic, intimate spot for um, for romance. And I definitely wouldn't have known that, you know, without um, without that tidbit of understanding the history and the culture. And that's not really cultural dissonance in this case, but an example of there is a cultural gap here in understanding like why it was so important and used a lot in anime. And it turns out that, you know, there's a very deeply inherently cultural reason for that. So uh, so with that example aside, specifically we are talking about today is dissonance stuff. So stuff that we had trouble understanding or just trouble sort of um, reconciling with because of our cultural differences of growing up as Asian Americans versus, you know, the stories coming from overseas Japan. Uh, with that being said, Isabel, you shall be the first one to start off this conversation this week. So, uh, Isabel, what are some anime moments or anime in particular that you've run into a cultural dissonance on? Yeah, for me, I focus more on kind of like the experience, like cultural difference in experiences. Uh, and so the first one I have is seen in almost in a couple of anime. You see it, you know, here and there. And it's particular. It's 
catching bugs or on that summer vacation. Oh, yeah. Children uh-huh, go yeah. out and have their nets and everything and go out and catch like beetles. Um, or either there's always also when it's a summer episode, there's always the cicadas uh, as well. And for me, I, I live in a place where there aren't too many cicadas, but when I did go to college, there were a lot of cicadas. And for me, because I had watched an- anime, I was I was very intrigued by the sounds because there's such a loud bug. Uh, so it, it was kind of a funny moment for me when I was actually looking forward to that. And then later on, of course, I got tired of it because it was so annoying because it was all, like all day. <laughs> but yeah, in general, catching bugs, like I see this especially in My Hero Academia when uh, Deku kind of thinks about his past with Bakugo and has children. They always, uh, you see the scene where they're, you know, having nets and going, uh, going to catch bugs and things like that. And so like for him, it's like a fond memory and a lot of other anime as well. Um, another one that I can think of is Barakamon, especially because they're kind of out, you know, out in the countryside. That was more of a thing for the children to go and play with. They love touching the bugs. And, you know, just making jokes with other children or things like that. And so for me, that wasn't really an experience like when I was younger. At most, I will play with like roly polies on the sidewalk. And then like, that was it for me. I never touched any bugs. I didn't want to touch any bugs. And like, maybe it was something maybe older, but in terms of actually grabbing like a net and going to catch bugs uh, or going to summer camp and doing that, like that's, that's just not a thing. So Whenever I see that in anime, especially when it's like a memory for the kids, I always think of it as something that I never experienced, but it seems like it's a huge part of like Japanese culture. Like if you go out to the countryside, like this is what you're going to do as a kid. Um, it may have changed now, but at least that's what that's how it's portrayed in anime. Um, but have either of you had that experience? I don't know, you know, Gracie, because you, know, you live in Texas. Is that something you experience? Is that normal or... Uh, no, I live in suburbans. That's not normal. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. I I actually, uh, I share one with you, Isabel, in that I played with roly-polies. That's definitely a thing. Mm -hmm. I I kind of think that's kind of a thing in the U.S., right? Playing with (laughs) roly-polies. Yeah, because roly-polies, you can typically find them on, like, concretes and uh, 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 playground gyms kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So. That and ladybugs, too, I think is the most common mm-hmm. for kids yeah, in yeah. suburban or urban areas in the U.S. Um, but it's a unique flavor for the Japanese to collect bugs in the countryside, for sure. It's like, um, what's the right word? It's like we, we avoid the big bugs. Like, that's the thing. We, we avoid them. We mm-hmm. don't touch them. It's the smaller ones that we're more likely to. I mean, really, bullies as a whole, I get why it's, you know, enticing for kids because they're really chill. They basically never, like, you know, they, they don't scurry off. They don't um, bite, for that matter. They just roll up cutely, and then they unroll themselves, and that whole experience is just fun and kind of fascinating for a kid. But, yeah, I definitely don't have experience playing with bugs, but here's what I will say my mom does and my dad it's like a very well-known pastime during the summer in China to essentially catch cicadas by your hand like literally literally a kid and I remember this because I went back to China several times um during the summer back when I was younger when we had summer break and it was a, a kid just randomly used his hand and grabbed a cicada right off, the, right off the tree bark. It was like, look, I caught one. 
and it was just super duper casual. And I was like horrified because <laughs> I was like, why would you touch that with your hand? And I'm not even scared of bugs. And I was still like, you know, why would you do something like that? Like, that just seems so like wrong for some reason. But and my mom would have to calm me down. She's like, yeah, everyone does this. Like, I, I caught cicadas all the time with your hands. You just catch them with your hands and see how many, many you can catch and stuff. So um, so I think it's funny because I do um, I do kind of like know where it comes from since it was it was and I think still is actually quite a popular pastime for kids in China. Uh, granted, they don't use the nets. Like I said, they use their bare hands <laughs> to catch the cicadas. Um, but even past the cicadas, it's like, uh, what are those beetles? Those ginormous beetles. They show that a lot in um, alongside the cicada catching as well. Um, rhinestone beetles like a horn something horn beetles do you guys know what i'm talking about yeah i've seen images of those yeah yeah they're huge and they they they're also big, yeah. they also play that for a pastime i i think in anime as well right like that's uh, mm -hmm. yeah the horn beetle i think it's like the yeah the horn beetle is usually the most referenced beetle that they catch in the countryside oh is this okay i have to ask and i, I don't think any of us are bug ex experts here but um is that like a bug that's like unique to japan's countryside or like it just seems like it a big deal might be, it might be something that has been carried over between all the countries so they might have shared populations or similar populations mm, okay that's my guess at least yeah okay but yeah, that was the other thing I thought of with um with the whole bug thing um that Isabel brought up. I also read very briefly on Wikipedia that apparently bugs and beetles in particular take a very big precedence in Japanese historical context. Oh, okay. Um, whether it's like Shinto lore or like eating oh. bugs and things like that too. Mm -hmm. So I think that the culture around bugs is a little less alarming than as opposed to like in the West. Whereas in the West, you see a bug, you immediately think like, is it poisonous? Is it going to mm -hmm. kill me? Is it going to hurt me? Right? Is it going to bite? That's, yeah. <laughs> it, that, that's the general consensus. Yeah. But for bugs in Japan and Asia, I think as a whole is a little bit more holistic. Um, but then we also in Asia, especially in the older times, they use bugs as part of medicine, for example, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Versus in the West, mm -hmm. we don't really have that. In the West, we we rely more on herbs, at least in early medicinal texts. No, I think that makes that's completely right. Yeah, I I also think it's interesting because um my mom did say when she immigrated here to the U.S., she did kind of have to get used to the bugs because she said that um. The bugs in China don't bite the same way like yeah. they do in the U.S. Yeah. Here in the U.S., I think we have too many different species of insects that... Uh, what's There's a word that they have for it where it's like, oh, an invasive species. I think we have too many invasive species of like bugs, snakes, and things like that in the U.S. Because there's just so many different varieties that people bring over or they just naturally develop in the U.S. So they're definitely more hostile than opposed to the ones like in China or like in Japan. Mm, that's also interesting. But yeah, that's definitely one thing that had stuck out to me with my mom's stories is that she was like, Coming here to the U.S. is learning that ants, like, they hurt a lot more than the ants in China. I, I found out fire ants aren't aren't a thing in China, like, at all. And they're everywhere oh. here in the U.S. So it's like, it's just there's certain things that just blows my mind when I hear about that. But, um, yeah, I think it's interesting, Isabel, though, that, you know, because some people would be terrified the idea, like, a summer activities to catch the bugs. But you actually thought that sounded pretty interesting. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, if it's safe and they don't bite me, I think it would be a fun activity, at least. I mean, we did that. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about it earlier how we did it with roly polies and ladybugs, right? Like, how many people do you know collected roly bugs and lady roly polies and ladybugs <laughs> within like first grade and third grade? Oh, a right? lot. Yeah. 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 And I think you can also say the same thing for like grasshoppers and stuff, too. Some people might be collecting them, but definitely not to the level of like cicadas or beetles. Mm-hmm. Butterflies is like an exception. But it's like you kind of have to be a butterfly fanatic rather than just a kid who's just like, oh, I like insects. I'm going to collect them to be my pets kind of thing. Alrighty, so that's one of your examples. What is another one in regards to uh, something that's inherently Japanese that you've seen in anime that kind of surprised you, threw you off, whatever it is? (laughs) Yeah, the second I have is very general. It's obviously in Japanese anime, but also I think it's more common in Asian culture as well. Is in general, it's it's bathing or going to public public uh, baths, mm. which is just not really a thing that I do here in the U.S. Obviously, I know about them. And not only that, just like bathing in general, kind of like for Japanese people, it's like a daily thing for them um, at times. Yes. But then, and you'll see that in almost any anime, you know, where they go home, all they look forward to is like a bath, right? Whereas here, I feel like, well, one, I don't really want to pay for spending all that water in the tub. Uh, but yeah, we just mostly just take showers and then we're like done with it. Um, and so it's interesting that they have like a whole kind of culture around going to bathhouses. It's like a could be a friend activity. It could be, you know, going out with your coworkers, kind of like doing a getaway type of event. Um, and there's even a whole anime about that. I don't know if you guys seen the one on Netflix it was the one with Tsudoken. It's like oh, Therme. It's the, the Therme. Therme Romeo. Where it's like a, yeah. a Roman guy gets transported to Japan, Edo, and experiences hot baths, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so obviously bathing is not uncommon in Western. Like obviously the Romans had a culture of that too. Kind of like the Roman bathhouses and things like that. And especially in that anime, it's interesting because you get this Roman guy who's like tall and has like curly hair. Um, and then he's he's time traveling. So he, as an architect, he time travels into modern day Japan. And so it was interesting, interesting to see him kind of interact with people, people in Japan, like modern day Japan. And, you know, being fascinated with like the yellow tubs in the bathhouse or wondering about, you know, like air conditioning or the fan and things like that. So I really like watching him like kind of like take down pieces of what the bathhouses are like. Um, in Japan and then like breaking it down and then even more detailed than what we might see in other anime where they just kind of like you know go into the bath just jump in have fun Um, Mm -hmm. yeah I have never actually been to a bathhouse I feel like even when I did travel to Japan just wasn't for me um, and other countries as well but I feel like it's it's always something like if you watch anime you feel like oh this is an experience that you should have or if you ever want to travel there it's something that you would want to try but yeah, I just want to know what your thoughts are in bathhouses or what you see in anime as well. Um, Agnes, if you want to start. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really great comment because we definitely don't have that in the Western culture. But I can definitely explain why we don't have that in the Western culture. <laughs> um, and that's because after the Roman Empire fell, basically nobody felt the need to restore Roman baths. And the medieval era was especially dirty. You know, we got things mm. like bubonic plague and things like that. So hygiene was not necessarily on the mind of a lot of western people's ideas even like way into like age of enlightenment and into the victorian era victorian era was when they realized like oh hygiene is very important this is why we get sick 
but at that case, it's like hundreds and hundreds of years of lost tradition of bathhouses and um, being clean and having like going to these open air baths as opposed to in Asia and then mostly in Japan where most of that was intact for quite a while. Although I do have to comment that what's really interesting is that we, we think about how like, oh, bathhouses emerge probably from like modern day Edo, oh, not modern day, but from like the Edo period and then into the modern day period, right? But I read a manga recently that was about a Scottish woman who went to go visit uh, Japan in the like late like 1700s, early 1800s. And she it was Isabella Bird. And she remarked that a lot of Japanese people in the countryside didn't have access to onsens or like open air baths. So the concept, the dual concept of having super cleanliness in the countryside versus actually in the big cities is still like a pretty big difference as opposed to right now in Japan where everything is very modernized and revolutionized. Almost everywhere has like an onsen, but having an onsen in the countryside or at least finding one was very difficult and not necessarily a common thing as we think. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it would be yeah, more Yeah, I didn't common. know that either because I was also kind of like, oh, I thought it was like very common in the countryside. And even Isabella Bird thought the same thing too mm-hmm. because she heard a lot of rumors and stories about it. But it turns out that a lot of villages that she experienced because she basically went on a trek between Tokyo and all the way to the north to the Ainu country front, uh, like the Ainu frontier. And she was just very, very much as shocked to figure out that a lot of villages did not have access to onsens. So that was my little history tidbit for the week <laughs> for this because I had to interrupt with that. No, yeah, I was. I, I do think it's fascinating that, like, essentially the West doesn't have a thing for baths because people were angry at how the Romans and the Greeks treated them back in the day. <laughs> so <laughs> it's that, but then it's it's mostly because they just demolished a lot of. It I know of it out of nothing but memory. revenge pettiness. If we, to be honest, <laughs> so. pretty much, yeah. And then you just have a, a big blank blank spot in history where they're just like, oh, why do we have all these problems? And they're like, well, you have all these problems because you keep getting sick and you're not hygienic, you know, kind of I thing, was literally so. talking to Shauna the other day, like, this is a little historical thing, but I was like, it's kind of sad how in the medieval era, they did not know how to know when someone is truly dead, dead. But then the Romans knew that you had to listen for a pulse. And if the pulse was gone, then that means the person is gone. And it was just literally, they kind of reset their own knowledge of the biological human body because they burned everything, including all of the scientific knowledge that the Romans have gathered in their very, very long years of existing as a powerful empire. and uh, and so it was just I just think it's funny because it's like BC era people knew to listen to a pulse and if the person is if there's no pulse and the person's dead and then after Christ era and like the 1300s they were sticking nails underneath people's fingernails yeah. and trying to see if they were yeah, dead they were, they were doing some pretty insane <laughs> back then <laughs> I just like I was like this could have been fixed you know if you guys just kept the library intact you know you well technically there were libraries but it was sequestered by the catholic church oh so oh. a lot of the knowledge of Ro- greco-roman stuff was kept secret by monks oh. and even then monks are meant to be sequestered like clergy folks so they actually aren't supposed to be interacting with the public anyway so a lot of knowledge was lost and then also sequestered to a very few but even then they don't even have as many records as they did compared to the roman empire so that's messed up, man. <laughs> There's a lot of messed up things in the medieval world. Welcome to medieval history in the Europe. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. That somehow made it 
Yeah, it makes it a lot worse when you think about it. But yeah, back to the, the thing about onsen. It's definitely a very unique Japanese experience,、yes. at least in the modern day, too.、Mm. Um, I've only been to one onsen, like, in, like an open aired hot springs in Arizona, because they basically found. A, like a geothermal site, and they're just like, oh, let's make it into like a hot springs. And they made it like all Japanese inspired and stuff. And、mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is cool.、Uh, it's, it doesn't cost as much as flying all the way to Japan. But I definitely will say, I think the Japanese experience of a bathhouse or an onsen in Japan is much better than the ones that they have in the US for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, this is kind of a unique situation to Japan and not like East Asia, for example, because baths aren't a thing. China.、Um, it, it, we do have public bathing areas, but it's like, you know, group bathing areas, but those are showers even there. They are, there's no bath for you to sit in and stuff. It's, it's literally showers. And,、um, and I think, and yeah, it is, it is really interesting because, you know, baths are so much more、um, present in Japan versus every, everywhere else in the world. So that's definitely a unique. Japanese thing. Well, the other thing about onsens is because Japan is located on a geographical fault. So that produces a lot of nascent like volcanoes and geographical fault. Right, right. But I'm talking about even so, in anime where, you know, Isabel was saying like they're constantly showing our characters in the cities, you know, just taking a bath in their home versus they could have taken、oh, a shower. Oh, yes, yes. That's, that's very unique to Japan. Yeah. yeah.、Um, <laughs> There's no animation in the world that. That shows a character taking a bath or a shower, unless it's a sexy time scene, right? Right, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> or it's like a rich Showers person. Showers is only reserved for sexy times, oh, that's or it. Or a rich person with that glass of champagne, you know, like that sort、oh, of yes, thing. Oh, yes, it is. Or, you know, the, the depressed.、Um, What is it? The depressed wife yes, and her, yes. her, and having a midlife crisis sitting in the bath going like. <sighs> With, like, a glass of wine and trying to decompress because she has three kids and a husband that can't do anything, right? Right, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it is. That's why it is a very unique Japanese thing. And、um, I think it's interesting, though, because it is a combination of history and, you know, geographic locations and how it trickled up into just overall modern sort of way of living. So,、uh, so yeah, it, it's very fascinating. But you are right. That is definitely a cultural、uh, thing that is. Reflected in anime a lot that we definitely don't really experience ourselves.、Um, but okay, so、uh, I guess, Agnes, then now it is your turn, and I'm very curious to hear which ones you picked for you know, culture gap, cultural dissonance in anime、uh, as someone who is not Japanese when watching it. <laughs> for sure.、Um, I think over the years, I've kind of Understood like basic things about Japanese culture from watching so much anime, so it doesn't phase me as much anymore of like cultural dissonance, I guess, because we grew up watching so much anime. But I think the things that irked me the most is things that are surround regarding schools、okay. and policies that are at schools.、Okay. So I think the first one that really irked me the most was working jobs as a student, and that was prevalent the most in Kaicho Wa Maid Sama because the premise of Kaicho Wa Maid Sama is. The main character, the female main lead, is unable to work because of school policies. And she, she goes to an,、like, right. a, a, a pretty decent school and they want them to focus on、mm. studies. But because her family is so poor, because their father ran out on them and her mom is very frail and they don't have any other living relatives to help them, she has to work a secret job as a maid to basically pay for her family's expenses and also continue going to school. And I thought that was really foolish. 
Um, because in the U.S. it's a different type of story, especially in public schools. You have the freedom to do an extracurricular, an extra job on the side if you want to make some extra cash. And there's a lot of people that go straight to work after they leave high school too. So being focused on studying as a whole in America is not super as important as, you know, otherwise being sustainable versus in Japan there's a lot of high schools not all of them but many high schools who forbid students from working a part-time they job can get in trouble they yeah focus on studying and they actually get in trouble for that too they get reprimanded quite a bit and the thing that I find the stupidest out of that is the reason why you're able to study is because you have the privilege to be able to study mm -hmm. not just because you have money but because you go to a well-off neighborhood you have parents that are well off you don't need to work to provide for yourself or your family you simply just have to study and work hard which is a very big norm in japan i think because a lot of high schoolers and middle schoolers at that point are coming from well-to-do families or decently decently a well-incomed families like in the middle class or so but there are definitely you cannot ignore the fact that there are lots of other Japanese families that are in poverty and require their kids to do a secondary job but their school doesn't let them do that and I think that is very restricting and it re reflects very poorly on how the Japanese treats its population equally in that regard. I completely agree with you I think um you know, I don't know how it is across the U.S., but at least, you know, when I was in high school, there's even sometimes high school students just want a part time job just to see what it's like. Like I, I did waitressing yeah. during the summer in my like last high school year or maybe it was in my junior year. And genuinely, it was because I just wanted my mom thought it was a good idea for me to get some just work experience under my belt. And I didn't have to report about it to anyone like it, it's my own life I get to do it on my own and it was a it was it was a very important um you know experience and I think if anything the U.S. even um you know even uh, amplifies the fact that or uh, or encourages um will often encourage the experience for high school students to try a service job at one point just temporarily just to experience what it's actually like and such and it's it's definitely not looked down upon at all much less reprimanded for in that man in that matter and i and it's like i i on top of all that japanese schools are honestly more expensive like the supplies you have to buy exactly. the uniforms you have to buy like it's it adds up i i always get shocked when I see the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if it's not a public Japanese school, because public Japanese schools typically don't enforce uniforms as compared to true private school, uh, private schools in Japan, which is what we typically see in anime, even in kindergarten, you have to buy a rando sack, mm -hmm. which is basically like this leather high quality backpack for all young elementary school kids to carry with them to school. That thing costs anywhere between like 60 to $80 at minimum. It can go up to almost $200 for an elementary school kid. And I'm just like, dude, when I went to elementary school, I had a backpack that was like $15. Okay. Oh, my <laughs> like, mom bought like the insane. $5 on sale rack at Target. <laughs> that's what I have. Okay, yeah, there you go. Like, it de like, you can go as cheap as you need, but the fact that there's a weird money status quo that is also embedded into a lot of the school system is really kind of bullshit to me. I don't understand it, and I refuse to understand it, and I don't think it's fair for a lot of other struggling Japanese families either. No, I completely agree. And I don't I don't know, like what about you Isabel? Have you has this ever occurred to you when you were watching the series and such? Yeah, actually, I forgot about that. But yes, when it when I saw it in the series or in any series where 
you know the students not supposed to be working they like go out of the um go out of their way to go work somewhere else so they don't get caught yeah that was so weird to me because it's so encouraged in the u.s to work yes and yeah i don't know i don't know if it's a unique like u.s thing where like maybe later on in japan i don't know if like if you graduate you know it's easier to find a job Perhaps. No, it's definitely not easier to find a job in Japan because most people expect you to go to college on top yeah. of that too. Mm, no wonder. So I feel like the working part-time thing, not being able to work part-time is almost a uniquely Japanese situation because I don't think Korea or China has those policies right now. No, there isn't. The, in fact, they, the bigger thing is more like the Chinese school curriculum is so hard that it's more like kids don't usually have the time to even think about doing um a part-time so we've got a different a issue job. yeah it, we've got a different issue right, going okay. on in china but there's definitely no restrictions that say you're not allowed to so yeah it's just more common that you don't see kids working because they're busy studying yes. but there there's no actual restriction versus in japan there is a true restriction on it which is very bullshit right exactly <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like they also put an emphasis on clubs. So, like, if you weren't working, yeah. you would be in, stuck in a club, like, after school. Yeah, and it's a requirement to be in a club, too. And I'm just like, what uh-huh. if I want to be the going home club? Like, well, I, I don't want to stay that's, like, You know, it's weird for me to bring up Jujutsu Kaisen. It's like, that was the whole thing for Itadori because he had a sickly grandfather that he wanted to visit at the hospital and spend as much time with because he knew he didn't have much time left. So he had to, like, just join a club. And luckily, he did find one that's, like, tiny, you know? But that was why he joined it in the first place was because he needed to so he just joined this tiny little one that no one really attends so that he can still give the majority of his time to his uh, you know ailing grandfather like he should be allowed to not have to join and just be with his ailing grandfather <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's just weird because like i understand why the japanese would want to in states clubs as a requirement because it's a way to like foster the community get kids to work together and stuff like that too i get that because it's kind of the same thing here in the u.s but at the same time like yeah kids have other things to do they have other people to attend to you shouldn't take that time away from them uh yeah okay so excellent excellent example here agnes so what is your second one in regards to cultural dissonance (laughs) Uh, the second one is actually something that I didn't get too heated about when I was watching the show for context, but it struck me as very odd okay. and something that I wouldn't be comfortable knowing if that existed in an American school system, for example, or even in a European school system. And it's the concept of the teachers able to visit a student's home, which was shown in Sweetness and Lightning. Uh-huh. So Sweetness and Lightning is very wholesome, right? It's about... Uh, basically a single dad and his kid they've basically been eating a lot of frozen dinners they're getting very sick they're they're not enjoying it and then they manage to meet a high school student who the father works for the school for and they figure out that the girl's mom runs a restaurant and then they all make dishes together and they're all very happy right it's, it's a cute wholesome story the only thing that ticks me off the most about it is the fact that there's a general acceptance in the japanese society that a teacher comes to a student's home And that is because there's a lot of power dynamics that come into it. There's a lot of abuse of a teacher abusing a student um, or even like sexually harassing them, depending on the position, if it's like male versus female or female versus male. So I think the Japanese acceptance of a teacher being able to be welcomed into a student's home was a little bit dubious for me. Although I can't say for sure that's exclusively a Japanese thing because I know in other Asian cultures, there's a lot of stories about, you know, tutors and students getting together and things like that too. 
So I wonder if that is something that you guys see as a cultural dissonance, because I definitely see it as a cultural dissonance. I didn't think about that, honestly, but I completely see the issue now that you've said it out loud, because it is someone's private home. And on top of that, I, I hate saying it like this, but I'm pulling it from my own Chinese experience as well, is that people are so judgmental in um, collectivism culture because you have to be average. They want you to be average. They don't want you to be different. And so it's like, if you come from a poor family, your teacher is going to judge you. So you don't, you don't want them to know. You don't want them to see that. And it sucks a lot. So, um, so thinking about that, I can see how that's a serious issue. Another one that I thought of is that it's very, I learned from, you know, Unseen Japan that there is a huge child abuse problem in Japan where the CPS basically doesn't do anything or their version of the CPS basically doesn't do anything because they put way too much um, weight on what the parents say and not what the uh, and not what the children say. So it's like I can see someone making an argument and being like, well, then, you know, if they go to the homes, they can see if they're in an abusive environment and they need help and stuff. I think that at least in the U.S., I think you can make an actual argument for it because teachers have saved a lot of children's lives because they will notice Mm -hmm. kids are coming in looking different with bruises or ragged or just in a way that's not right and they'll report it and have actually saved children's lives that way so I can definitely see how in the U.S. maybe if a teacher does visit a home they'll they'll notice these things and like potentially get a child out of a terrible situation but you don't have that argument in Japan because even when it's kind of like clear cut they still often let the child go back to the parents and so because the parents weight the words have more weight than Everyone else is around them, whether it's the kids, whether it's the kids' friends, whether it's adults around the kids, including teachers. So it almost feels kind of pointless <laughs> at the end of the day when it comes down to it, because the one good thing that could have come out of it is basically non-existent in regards to some of the issues that Japan has. And so um, so I definitely see what you're saying. It's just, uh, but this is definitely one of them that I didn't occur to me. But now that you said it, it's going to be a little hard for me to unsee it. So that's where I'm at. And for me, um, yeah, I didn't think about it too much either. But I see your point, Gracie, you know, the fact that, you know, it might be better, at least in the U.S., if they see something wrong, they most likely will say something and something will happen. But yeah, when I see those scenes in anime, I just think, okay, the teacher's just visiting just because they're worried about something. I hope so. Uh, Yeah. I hope so. I mean, there are some (laughs) reprehensible teachers that do things like filming up girls' skirts. So I'm just kind of like wary side eye for a lot of these things. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, they could just make an excuse like, I need to go see this person today. And then that teacher is visiting them. And it wouldn't be, and they wouldn't think that it's like different, like something that's worrying. Like the students would be like, oh, okay, the teacher's visiting them. Sure right? Like, they wouldn't really care about it. Right, yeah. And I mean, like, things such as, like, tutoring centers or visiting a teacher after hours, like, on campus is a thing. Why do you need to invite a teacher to your own home is what kind of concerns me. Honestly, honestly, even just, I don't know, like, leaving just two people unsupervised. I I don't know if it's me being too cynical. Yeah, meeting two people unsupervised is a thing, too, yeah. Because, I mean, we have all these American wild stories of, like, you know, the teacher would be like, come see me after class. And, you know, you're just like, oh, sh-. 
Okay, this is where things are going now. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, we have the Kumon programs, but the Kumon programs are like... <laughs> Kumon? Yeah, sorry. Sorry to bring up bad memories, guys. <laughs> I didn't have to go through Kumon, but I've definitely heard horror stories about Kumon. So. I also didn't get to go through Kumon. I, my parents what? considered it, and... <laughs> Isabel, oh, no, like, yes, Isabel. Like... <laughs> my parents tutored me at home. Oh I had the luxury for that. So my my parents considered it, and I I I finessed my social skills to weasel my way out. Of it. My mom saw how poorly I was doing in AP calculus, and she said, "I'm going to teach you." I it. I'm going to teach you regardless if I don't like it or not. <laughs> oh my god! And the same thing went for my dad too. He's just like American school systems don't teach you in my day back in Europe and I'm like okay dad <laughs> I, I, I was also lucky that my parents are both very stingy so once they saw how expensive it was they were like oh, oh yeah, we don't too. have to do like you know I we could do it ourselves and I was like yes I don't have to do this so, so really I just kind of appealed to their stingy nature but that's how I got out of it Isabel do you have something to share <laughs> I am I'm am so jealous of you too. <laughs> <laughs> because my mom was literally well one she would teach me but two she loves spending money on education so i got to go to almost every single oh, tutoring center ever brags. yeah no well not even brag just like if she hears someone else like oh this this oh yeah your friend uh nicole or somebody is is having this tutor come over and then she goes and gets that tutor to come over to our house or something and because I'm the older one in the house, I usually have to go through that tutoring. Like at one point, she even like invited like uh, a teacher, or she made she made me go to his house. I guess that that's Ooh. kind of it was a weird thing to me because I think there's oh. a cultural dif- difference between how he's like he called me daughter um, in the language, but then I was like only my dad calls me that. Why are you why are you calling me that? Um, so I felt weird with him. But then he also didn't know how to teach from my textbook at school because he was like, oh, I don't I don't know why you're here, and I'm sitting there like. <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> this is like half of the thing. And then, yeah, there's another place you sent me to. The guy was like, why are you here? I don't know. I didn't get a good grade. My mom doesn't like it. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> what a quintessential experience. Holy oh shit. Oh my God. And then Kumon, I wanted to like, is so bad. I was like, I'm, I'm done with math. Mom, just put me in English. And even the English, I was like, I'm done too. I don't want to come here anymore. Oh, Isabel. Poor Isabel. Oh gosh, yeah, we I have lucked a, out. I have a lot of stories. <laughs> huh? I said we lucked out, Agnes. <laughs> we we definitely lucked out, yeah. Oh gosh, that's that's depressing. I'm sorry, Isabel. <laughs> I had to go through that. We 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 will no longer bring up the issue. It has induced enough PTSD in you. <laughs> no, it's okay. But if you guys want more stories, I definitely have a lot more. <laughs> Oh, juicy tea. Okay. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, we'll leave that to another episode in that case. Uh, okay. Well, I think in that case, it has now come to me. So um, I'm going to get one out of the way first because, you know, I talked about it briefly with both of you two already. But um, the first uh, anime or specific thing that happens in anime that I have cultural dissonance on is sort of the portrayal of managers or bosses. So, um, and the one in particular that really stood out to me was Aquatope because Aquatope is a bit of a unique situation. It actually criticizes a lot of the issues that uh, plague workplace uh, workplaces or corporate jobs in the um in, in Japan, for example, they actually touched on how unfair it is for women 
and how if you find out that a woman is married or a woman has a child, their chances of being promoted, of giving work that is meant to help propel their career, like just drops, like it skydives down. And there is a, a whole character um, created to comment on that fact in Aquatope. And I thought that was amazing, you know, and there was another character in there who, you know, critiqued essentially the work culture as a whole in Japan of how um, abusive, of how, uh, you know, ridiculous it can be in regards to the work hours and such. So uh, so this is so Aquatope is interesting that because, uh, you know, I can tell that the writers clearly know and see that there are issues with their work culture in Japan and have very ex- explicitly written it into the story to let people know that, you know, there are real people who are struggling through this and they're trying and they deserve better. But then they added something else in there that I just cannot agree with that clearly the writer actually doesn't think it's a big deal. And so uh, Kurumi in Aquatope, she's the one who uh, her family owned a um, small aquarium and then it shut down. And, um, and so she got offered, or not Kurumi, Kukuru. So Kukuru got um, invited to work at a humongous aquarium that is being built that essentially replaced her very small aquarium that her family owned. And, um, and she works in the marketing department and she has a manager. And the manager is not portrayed in a bad light. He is harsh on her. And um, he doesn't tell her what to do. He doesn't give her any instructions whatsoever. He just rejects it and tells her to start over. Or he's like this, or it's like, it's not good enough. Or do it over again and stuff like that. He doesn't tell her why. And he doesn't try to even explain to her what she's doing wrong. And, um, And he's portrayed as that hard on you teacher because he sees potential in you. And then at one point you see like the quote unquote better side of him as a manager when uh, she messes up royally bad in front of the client and um, and essentially he took the blame for her and like bowed his head said it said like you know to please give her more time to, uh, you know tell her that she's new and she's still learning and everything and essentially took the blunt of the issues that the client had and that was sort of like the moment that um, that was sort of the moment that Kukuru realized, like, you know, he really did believe in her and he wasn't angry at her after that mess up. And she really just need to figure it out on her own. But that's my issue with it is because in um, in the U.S. for corporate jobs, having a manager who does not teach you or manage you really in any shape or form you're not doing your job. That is considered unacceptable. That is considered you are a bad manager. And I actually have to say that I kind of feel more towards the American side of things. I think managers have a responsibility to train those who are beneath them because you can't just throw them, throw a child to the deep end and figure it out. And that's a, that's a phrase in the U.S. for a reason, you know, they're getting thrown into the deep end. Because here's the thing. If you throw a child who doesn't know how to swim into the deep end, they are going to drown. They are not going to figure it out. You have to teach them how to swim first. And so, um, and I think that is extremely important to be a manager. And that is something that the U.S. side of things stresses a lot. You know, I got trained by my managers when I started my corporate job. I'm 
I trained my subordinates who came in after me. I wanted to make sure that they understood the process, that they have no questions. If they have any issues, I, you know, walk them through it. Essentially, there's only really a problem if, you know, they're making the same mistake over and over and over and over again, no matter how much you try to train them. That's when it's an issue. But I don't think it's an issue at the beginning to do that. And so the way that he is portrayed as like a good manager was a cultural dissonant moment for me. And the thing is, I actually can understand why he's portrayed as a good manager because we've seen bad bosses in anime. They're the ones who, you know, blame you for everything, even stuff, even decisions that you make and you um, even decisions that they make and then you do it for them. And then it's wrong. They blame you for it. They don't blame themselves. And so he's actually considered a good manager in the lens of a Japanese context. But I think as a whole, you know, growing up in the American context, I think managers just have a responsibility to train those beneath them. And I just couldn't find that, um, you know, acceptable. And so because of that, I just could not see him as a good boss, even though the anime clearly written him for the purpose of a good boss. So, uh, so that's like my first example, and I know um, you two kind of heard about this already when I when we were discussing what we we're going to talk about this week. So, uh, wanted to hear your thoughts if that's something that's ever occurred to you guys when watching anime. I know there's not a lot of adult focused anime in the first place, but um, but it's just I'm curious if that's ever occurred to you. Yeah, I haven't seen it in anime, but I kind of had that idea the same as you, Gracie. At least for me personally, when I was going into the corporate world or starting my job and I kind of had that type of manager actually the one that you described in Aquatope where well maybe in Aquatope he knew what he was supposed to do or the job itself might have done it but for me I have had managers who actually don't know what the heck my job is um, or have come in completely new and so when I actually went to ask them for help they they didn't have the answer and so I had to figure out on my own wow so i did so there are there are actually managers like that it was surprising to me too i'm like why are you my manager if you didn't do this job type of thing right um, but i think there's another thing is that there are trainers at my job too so their advice would be you know they at least my supervisors were like kind enough to at least give me the guidance and everything else i needed like yeah. if i had a personal problem or something they would be more welcoming of that but in terms of like the actual kind of like the details of how the work should go, it would go to like a senior member. Like I would have to go ask that senior member instead or or some of my coworkers. That's how kind of like my experience was. Um, so that was kind of surprising to me. But uh, yeah, in general, like when you're taught, I felt like, yes, your manager should know um, exactly what to do or at least. But then in my case, since I had extra help. I think maybe in Aquatop they could have done that, but it's different, I guess, in Japanese culture, especially if you have like a smaller company and um, there's not, you know, as many people working, uh, depending on exactly, um, you know, your job type and yeah, just how many people there are in general, just because I think, at least in my position, there were at least a ton of us. So there was a lot of people I could ask, but yes, I don't know if you experienced that too, Agnes, or how your managers have been. I experienced the opposite, like straight up the bat, um, because I started out in academia where there's no hiring managers or anything like that whatsoever. So you definitely get the, the, the what, what, what is the phrase? You get the brunt 
of your uh, your scientist who basically rats you out on everything and is very horribly verbally abusive towards you. Um, and then it's really funny because when I actually started working corporate and I got to meet like managers and like teams of people that train you, I was like, wow. This feels so different. <laughs> you know, it was kind of PTSD inducing. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> it was, I, I will tell, there's a lot of stories that, well, I can't say that all of academia is like that, but because in academia, there's nobody to place accountability on them. There's a lot of scientists that will take out your anger on you and will verbally abuse you. Um, I won't talk about my PI for, for, for that moment because I, it's very tiring talking about him. Um, but I will say one of my friends who's actually in medical school, when he was an undergraduate, he wanted to um, he wanted to do like basically an internship or do some undergraduate research under a psychiatry uh, doctor who was who had a research clinic on campus. He went in on his first day hoping to get that, you know, that position as an undergraduate researcher. And he heard from other students that the psychiatry professor is so incredibly neurotic that he will throw stuff out the window if you don't respond to his email in less than 24 hours. What? Yeah, oh like God. he will throw papers, he will throw items out the window. I wouldn't be surprised if he threw a chair out the window at that rate. Um, there's a lot of really weird horror stories. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of scientists and professors alike who are incredibly neurotic and do not fit that bill of having a manager. Um, and in a way, it kind of makes me think about how Japanese culture is like too. And I think one of the biggest reasons why they act like that is because there's nobody to hold them accountable, or there's no HR in the U.S. HR is king, in the sense that. Everything has to be done by HR's book, regardless if you like it or not, because they're here to protect you. They're here to make sure you don't get harassed. Versus in in Japanese countries, the concept of HR, I think, doesn't virtually exist, except if you're doing like hiring talent companies and stuff like that. But HR as a whole, I don't think actually exists in the sense to protect their employees. They're just there by law. Mm. Um, and in a way, academia in the US is also the same way too. There is no... HR that hires you for a position. You just walk right in, you ask them, I have these qualifications, here are my CV, and they're like, okay, you're hired, we're going to start paying you now. But there's no real HR to actually screen you and process you and tell you about company policies and things like that. Nor will there actually be trainers either. So, Guys, the HR department is very important. <laughs> HR is very important. Even if you don't like them, even if they act like a bunch of people who sit there, drink mimosas around the clock and really do anything, <laughs> remember that if you're being sexually harassed or you're being harassed by your boss, you go to HR for these types of issues. And if HR doesn't help you, then you leave that company. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, also I was going to say is this kind of reminds me of, well, first of all, I... I didn't know that that was actually present in the academia thing, but with you explaining, there's a big chunk of people missing in academia that controls this specific yeah, area. There's a, there's a big, 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 big chunk. The only people that are important in academia are the PIs that basically create the lab. They're the ones with the big names. They have all the sponsors and stuff. And then the university that pays them, and that's about mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah, no, but one thing that the Aquatope thing also reminds me of is, you know, I hear these stories when you know, U.S. corporations have to work with Japanese corporations. And so it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and not even talking about anime trending here, for that matter. Um, I saw a story of someone online that there are professional people whose main purpose 
is to help with communications and interactions between the West and Japanese companies because of how yep. different they are. And one person shared a story where, you know, it was hard because they were like both sides just did not understand. Like they tried their best to explain it and neither side was willing to budge because on the U.S. side of things, I think it was a U.S. company, but on the U.S. side of things, they were very communicative. They were constantly emailing, giving you guys updates, you know. Uh, but the big issue is that they would always ask the Japanese side, hey, what do you think we should do? This this is a problem that happened. What do you think we should do? What are some solutions you'd like us to try? Um, you know, what, are there any solutions you don't want us to try? And on the Japan side, it's crickets. They, they don't respond at all. Yeah, that's <laughs> typical. <laughs> that's typical, yeah. And the people who are in between trying to bridge this were trying their hardest, darn hardest to explain to the U.S. side of things. They're not going to answer you. They expect you to figure it out on your own and come up with your the best solution on your own and then get back to them and then get approval or rejected. And understandably, the U.S. side of things are like, well, what if we don't get to the solution that they want in that case? Then we spent all this time trying to figure it out on our own and it's wasted time and energy. It's more, you know, it's more efficient. It's quicker if they tell us, you know, here are some of the things that you don't want us to try. So we immediately narrow it down. And and they're like, I get it. I understand. I know. And this is very typical and communicative of U.S. And once again, I work in a U.S. corporation job. I, I can attest to that. That's exactly how we communicate between each other. And it's like, but that's just not going to happen with a Japanese company. I need you to understand that that's just not going to happen. And so I, that story really stuck with me. And that's also what I kind of thought of when I was watching Aquato, because that's exactly what was happening. She's making all these mistakes and he's not telling her why or what he doesn't like about it, or perhaps what her thinking is that's, like, made, letting her make all these mistakes. He just goes, no, no. <laughs> and so, um, so, yeah, that was the other thing I thought of um, in connection to this particular cultural dissonance. Um, the second one that I have on my list is um, a movie that I know Agnes has definitely seen, and um, it is Wolf Children, um, by Hosoda Sang, and he also created Belle. We've talked about Wolf Children before because, you know, we, we talked about the mom for our single moms episode, and I do love her. But the cultural dissonance part, and I actually learned that this isn't just me when I was young and watching it, but, like, the U.S. Had a, as a whole kind of had a bit of issue grappling, was at the end, the girl, like, her ending is that she assimilates into human society like she's normal now she's a normal girl she wears normal clothes and she acts normal she she doesn't really want that wolf side of things she just wants to be human and um and that like as a kid when I was watching it I didn't really like that ending for her because I was like I don't see why there's any issue of like her still you know Having a side to her that is special, that is different, that's that only she knows and the people around her that she trusts knows. And then um, and then having that normal society side that you kind of have to put out wherever you go when you're in the general public. I don't see why there's an issue on that versus like her versus it's like her brother and her went completely different routes and her brother completely becomes a wolf of the forest and she becomes this normal human teenager girl. And so... Um, and then, and it was really interesting because I watched it with my mom. My mom, my mom thought it was great. 
Like, she thought it was great that the girl, like, you know, um, you know pushed the side of her, the wolf side of her aside and had completely assimilated into human society versus me, who was like, I think she could have both of them. You know, I don't see why she can't have both of them. And I later learned um, that this was actually kind of a cultural dissonance that happened in all of the West. A lot of the Western fans who watched that movie that was one part of the ending that they didn't really quite like. They were like, I don't understand why she had to be quote unquote only human and not like, you know, and not embrace the more unique side of her that makes her who she is. And this is definitely a cultural dissonance. I know that for a fact, just through my mom's point of view. And this is probably honestly less to do with Japan, but more of East Asia. That it's really, really important that you never stick out from the crowd, that you have to be average and look just like them and act just like them. And that's considered a good thing. Um, My parents actually got on me all the time for being different in school. Like they hear or they're they, they would be in denial. Like they'd hear stories about me and people would be like, oh, Gracie's like so different and unique. My parents would be offended. They would be like, how dare you claim that my child is not normal? Like, how dare you? And they come home, (laughs) they come home and they'd be upset and they'd be like, can't you like be more normal? Like, can't you just make people see you and see just a normal girl? Like, why do people keep coming up to us and talk about how different you are? Like, it literally drove them nuts in that regard. Uh, One thing like, and this is something so stupid. And like Shauna says, she always forgets just how big of a deal my parents were would be bothered by until she remembers the stories that they hated my prom dress. I the prom dress I wore was very very different from everyone else's. It was a prom dress, but the way the the print, the way that the print is was just something that not a lot of people were wearing at that time. And so I was really the only one with that style of prom dress. And the thing is I I liked it because it was so different from the rest of the prom dresses I've seen. My parents to this day still hate that prom dress. They straight up will not believe me when I, cause I, cause I got so many compliments on it. First of all, people rarely saw me in a dress in the first place, but then um, when they saw it and uh, my teacher even explicitly the next day was like, Grace, I really loved your prom dress. It was so different from everyone. It really made you pop and stuff. And that's, you know, that's a compliment in English terms. But, and I'd happily tell my parents that my parents straight up don't believe me. They're like, oh, she's just saying it to make you feel better. Like, that's how much it bothers them that I would wear something that's so different from everyone else. So I know this is a cultural dissonance thing. And I know it's, like I said, not so much Japan as it probably is East Asia. But I just cannot bridge that gap. I definitely think this is one aspect of the West that I do like better is this embracing of uniqueness in people and that having uniqueness is not something to be ashamed about. If anything, it makes you stand out in a good way. And so, um, but that's like, but that was definitely how I felt. Like, I think I kind of like when I was watching Wolf Children with that ending, it would just give me unpleasant memories of like my own parents' reactions to me and my stories about me at school. And then, of course, learning once I went online, I learned that actually a lot of the West had issues with how that ended. So, um, so that was my here, here, sister, preach it. Yeah. Uh, so that was my second one. Um, I don't know, Agnes. You watched Wolf Children. Uh, d- did that thought ever occur to you at all with the ending, or because I know the mom was the main protagonist and we all love the mom but i was just curious if that's something that you thought about 
it did bother me a little bit at the end, uh, but then when you put it so plainly and then relate with your own experience, now I'm just sitting here reeling through my own Asian American experience and even just an Asian experience in general. Because yeah. I was very much a sore thumb in my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not the perfect golden child who does everything her parents say and is a wallflower. No, I beat up kids in kindergarten. <laughs> I have a lot of stories about this. We all know this already. I don't have to explain myself anymore. I was very different. I When I wore dresses, I was wearing like tight you know you think you're a cute little dainty princess wearing tights and dresses i tore up those tights and stockings because i ran across the playground tripped and fell and my parents were like why are you like this and i'm like i don't know i just came out of you you gotta accept it <laughs> and they did eventually. <laughs> at that point you know they got to the breaking point where i was beating up people and they put me into karate instead of ballet so that was that that's when they finally accepted it <laughs> but i understand how you feel about that ending and how like in japan there's that whole idea of collectivism that is just so it's just so heavily rooted in their social conscious that even if people want to break out, they can't because they'll be seen as even more freakish than their Japanese counterparts, even in like Western ideas too. Um, I know that there's a lot of like, I watch a, I watch a lot of Asian boss videos, for example, mm-hmm. right? Where they talk about people like Japanese people, for example, like getting tattoos or Japanese people that are embracing like a different norm or like trend. And a lot of their parents, when they go interview them, there was especially one girl who was who's there's this there's this trend in Japan. It's not the greatest trend, and it can be very harmful towards this particular community. But there's a blackism trend in Japan, but that's mainly because a lot of Japanese people admire black rappers mm-hmm. and admire black artists that they want to become like that because they see it as a way to free themselves from the Japanese society. So they listen to a lot of rap music. They try to tan themselves to become darker skin. That is a thing in Japan. That's a, that's part. That's also partially part of the gyaru culture too but when asian boss went to interview their families particularly their moms and their dads a lot of them would say oh it's just a face they'll eventually grow out of it and they'll become normalized again and i'm just like that is not a normalized face because the only reason why people are normalized is because they're forced to go back to the constraints of collectivism Mm -hmm. right why not live your truth why not live something that you aspire to be or a trend that you think is right because it fits well with you you know so that ending of wolf's children has never sat well with me nowadays in as an adult because i don't agree with it either so yeah i understand your point perfect and i don't know isabel did you watch wolf children i always forget if you did or didn't (laughs) no yeah i i haven't seen it so um but i can definitely see obviously outside of the show itself kind of like the collectivism in japan and i think it's talked about enough in at least the fact that you know they all want to be they aim for the same or they want more harmony right so i think that's like the ending of the story she you know if she joins society like this it, it'll be like you know good happy for them um and maybe the ending you know was good for for japanese people or they might see it that way but yeah for us at least in the west yeah we would rather have both sides right or have that uniqueness to a character or person in general Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i also think it's a bit ironic in wolf children that the story is about the mom and about her raising two very troublesome kids but at the same time i wonder if there's even a critique about how the mom tried to break out of the mold because she got together with a wolf man basically a stranger she never met and shapeshifts and that's already very strange in and of itself and then she's saddled with the burden of taking care of his children because he died 
right? And then she tries to force her kids to go into collectivism, uh, even though she herself didn't do that either. So I thought that was, I don't know if somebody made a social commentary about that or not. I don't think so, but I definitely saw people who are also just kind of like, upset with um the fact that oh of course it's the boy that gets to be the wild one you know and the girl that ends up proper right. yeah, that yeah. yeah so that's another but it's one. very clear that the girl herself was even more wild as a kid than her brother right was. her brother was a lot more timid, yeah so yeah so i i see that as like another um you know as another critique but yeah Okay, but anyway, um, so that is my second one, and that really wraps up today's episode. So for everyone listening, you know, whether you are a Japanese-American, Japanese, or perhaps, you know, you aren't, uh, are there any cultural dissonance moments when watching anime or maybe even stuff that you just don't agree with in regards to um, a cultural aspect? Please let us know, and uh, we'll be back next week with another fun topic. So I hope you'll be here next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.